You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you haven't met me, my name is Andrew Prado. I serve here with my wife and my two kids, Owen and Lila. Today we're going to be reading um, out of Galatians 5, verse 1 through 15. Give you a second to get there. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In the case, I'm sorry, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be with you this morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. If you're a guest, thank you for spending your morning with us, your time change Sunday with us, your spring break with us. You guys are the, uh, the A-team if you're here today on that uh, lost hour of sleep. Uh, if you're a guest, there's a connect card under your chair. Uh, if you'd take a minute, fill that out. Uh, let us know how we can connect with you, how we can serve you, how we can get you plugged in to the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Trenton will bring you one. Um, or you can download our app in the App Store. There's a Bible there as well. And if you're on your phone, we use the ESV. So this set of verses is marking a, a transition for us in the, in the book of Galatians. Paul, in chapters 3 and 4, has been giving a theological treatise of uh, how we're saved, of the means of salvation. Um, Salvation is by grace alone, the unmerited favor of God alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And here, through the end of the letter, Paul is switching from theology to ethics, meaning this, how are we as Christians supposed to live in light of the theology that Paul has presented to us? If the Bible is our authority, and and we believe that it is, um, then the things that are written in the Bible are more than words on the page. 
their instructions for our lives. And as Christians, how we live ultimately reflects what we believe to be true about Jesus and ultimately reflects what we value. And so Paul is going to spur this church of Galatia on. So when I was reading this text, I, uh, I went back in my head to my spring semester of my eighth grade year, and I was on the track team. Um, I know you can't tell by looking at me, but I did used to run track. Uh, I actually have a lot of stories of me playing sports and being hilariously unathletic. So I'm going to give you one this morning. Um, my junior high in Hobbs, New Mexico was rowdy. I went to Houston Junior High, home of the Devils. Uh, that was our mascot. And that's almost prophetic, whoever named it, because that place was wild. We would have kids that would come out for sports, and then our report cards would come out, and our teams would get cut in half because of bad grades, or like we'd have kids that get suspended from school for fighting or other gang-affiliated activity. But anyways, there was an eighth grade on the track team. Uh, I ran track in junior high because the freshman football coach uh, was the head track coach at my junior high. So I thought, hey, if I could go out there and work hard and, and woo him with my engaging personality, then I'd get to play more football in the ninth grade. So I was out there throwing the shot put, throwing the discus, and trying to not get last place in the 100-meter dash. And then report cards came out, and our team went from 15 runners to seven in one day. And so we had the last meet of the season, and we needed to fill all these events. And so I ran the anchor in the mile relay. The mile relay is four people running one lap around the track, handing the baton off. Again, we're out there trying to not get last. And I had not ran that far in a race in a long time. We also had this kid on our team who had never ran ever at any point in his life. So he was out there throwing things. He was throwing the shot put. He was throwing the discus. And he was content to just do that. Uh, and what we needed him. We needed somebody to run the first leg of this relay race. So the gun goes up, and my guy takes off. And for the first 30 meters, he's in there. Like, we're like, all right, we're going to be competitive. And then meter 31 happens, and he starts to fall behind. And by about meter 100, we're in last place. And by meter 200, he's in last by a long ways. And then when he's rounding for the final 100, the other teams, their second legs, are about to catch this guy. And so our second leg, also when he got the baton, was not fast either. And so by the time I got the baton as the last guy to go, I was out there running all by myself on this track, which again, if you've seen me run, it is a real treat. Um, some of you have been blessed enough to see it. Uh, anyways, I had to run 400 meters by myself with the whole southeast corner of New Mexico watching me. Um, anyways, my eighth grade track team was sort of like the Galatian church. They had a good start, but then they're in real danger of not finishing well. And so Paul is writing to encourage them, hey, let's get back on track here. Don't quit this journey that you're on. 
And honestly, I think that's our encouragement as well. We spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about our justification, how we're made right, how we're forgiven by God. And we spent the last few weeks talking about our adoption, how our justification by God leads to our sonship, our adoption from God. And so today we're going to spend some time talking about our sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, which is the goal of our spiritual journey. It's not necessarily that we get to heaven. That is a nice reward. But the goal of Christianity is that we're like Christ. It's that we're more like Jesus. So when God's people become more like him, it leads to the glory of the Lord, which is our entire purpose for being on earth. And it's the intent of all creation to bring glory and honor and praise to the Lord. Jesus himself says that he came to serve not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many in order to glorify the Father. So following Christ looks like obedience to Christ through faith in Christ. And obedience to Christ means service to Christ. So we're going to look at this set of verses together, but before we do that, let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our our need for you. Lord, I pray that we would see that in you there is freedom, Lord, and may we not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but for faith. Lord, we need you to show us what that means and what that looks like today. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. We're going to stop right there. So Paul's been arguing up to this point in the letter that because of the promise of God, the covenant with Abraham to bless many through one offspring, Jesus, And by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that has created a way for us to be saved by faith in Christ, we're simply free then to receive by God in Christ forgiveness of our sins. We don't have to work for Christ's acceptance. We are free simply to delight in what Christ has done for us. Paul says, for freedom... But what exactly does he mean by this? The, the Western American version of freedom means the freedom to say, the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, with whomever we want. We don't want anyone imposing their views on us. Essentially, American individuality, and this is permeated our culture. American individuality is what we think freedom means. Essentially that we're left alone. I want the freedom to be left alone. But that's not at all the biblical definition of freedom. And in fact, if that is your definition of freedom, I would submit to you that this idea of freedom is actually really dangerous to you. 
And just as a brief aside here for practical Bible study tips, it's important that you're not imposing your own views, your own definitions, your own cultural concepts on the Scriptures. We really need to seek out understanding on what the Bible is actually saying. So Paul says, for freedom. Here's the biblical definition of freedom. It implies that first, we need to be delivered. We needed to be rescued. We need to be rescued from the curse of sin's penalty. We are, at our conception, sinful to our very core. Our natures are sinful. We are born with natures and desires that are dead set on rebellion against God himself. We are broken, rebellious sinners. We have inherited a sin nature from our first father, Adam. And because Adam sinned, everything in us is broken. And at our conception, we have inherited his brokenness. Romans 5 tells us that through Adam's trespasses, one trespass, through Adam's trespass, all men are now under condemnation. We're condemned not because we make bad choices, Not because we mess up from time to time. No, we're condemned because when we sin, we are sinning against a holy, just, and righteous God. And because he is holy and just, he will not tolerate sin. Our sin deserves wrath because we're sinners. And what makes this worse is we can't do anything about it. Because of our sin, our consciences accuse us. We're guilt-laden, shame-ridden sinners with no hope. God created us to have a relationship with him, and our sins break fellowship with God. That's where our feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation come in, because when we sin, we are setting ourselves up against God and our consciences accuse us because we know in our core that God is holy. So we needed to be delivered. We needed this rescue. We need to be set free. We needed to be rescued from the righteous wrath of God against sin. And we get the deliverance that we need in Jesus. Additionally, and in line with the whole of Galatians, we need to be saved and rescued from the law that shows us that we will never and can never measure up. God gave the law in the Old Testament to show us what his standard of perfection is, and it shows us also that we can never keep it. The law functionally pronounces a curse upon us because we're expected to keep it and keep it fully and keep it perfectly, and we can't, and even if we could, we wouldn't because we're so sinful in our nature. We don't want to follow God on our own. So we've been set free from the curse of the law that accuses us before God. We've been set free from the fear of God that the law creates. And we've also been set free from the oppression of the thoughts and the realization that we aren't capable of measuring up. We've been set free because Jesus came and fulfilled the demands of the law for us. 
We're just going to deal with that. <laughs> a couple more weeks and we'll be done, I promise. <laughs> what the law could not do, which is make us alive and purchase peace with God, God has done through Christ. So we've been freed. We've been freed not to do whatever we want to do. We've been set free to follow God, to delight in God through Christ by walking with him through his Holy Spirit. The emphasis then is that Christ has set us free. It is Christ who did the work for us. Nothing we could do, nothing we had done, purchased our salvation. No, Christ is the liberator from sin and death. So Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul tells us then, since we have been set free from sin and death, don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to your former life apart from Christ. Think about what Paul is saying. He's saying you were held hostage by your sin. You were a captive to your sin. Then you were set free. Why do you want to go back to being a captive? We're brought back into this, this holy courtroom where God is the judge, and in great mercy, he declares us not guilty. He declares us justified. He declares us made right as if we had never sinned. He places our sentence of death upon God the Son. He places the sentence of death upon himself, bearing the curse for us on the cross. But then the judge who pardons also becomes our Father who adopts us as his own. So now everything that belonged to Jesus is now ours as a co-inheritor with Jesus. So with that knowledge of what we've been saved from and what we've been called into, Paul says we are to now persevere, to stand firm. The language here says continue. Continue to stand firm in your new life and not pick up the old burden of slavery. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul's continuing in this line of thinking. The whole substance of his argument is that if you, you either accept Christ fully or you don't accept him at all. Paul says if you accept circumcision as a means to earn your salvation, which is the whole reason Paul is writing this letter in the first place, if you accept circumcision to save you, then you have to keep all of the other parts of the law. Paul says in order to be justified by the law, you are required to keep the whole law. A good 2023 comparison would be you don't get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible you want to follow. You don't get to decide what you like and what you don't like. Verse 4, Paul says, if this is your position, knowing what you have been saved from, knowing what the law requires of you, and having the knowledge that you have been or could be rescued from this, because you can't keep the law, as we've already established, you are then severed from Christ. 
There's this theological issue that, that arises here in this verse, uh, and, and it's one that's divided Christians along denominational lines. The question is, can you actually lose your salvation? Those that would say yes would use this verse uh, in this section of Scripture as a proof text to say, yes, indeed, you can lose your salvation. But based on the words of Paul in other parts of the New Testament and the words of Jesus himself, this is not at all what Paul is saying. Tony Morita in his commentary says that based on the context of this passage, Paul is talking about falling away from the doctrine of grace, meaning this. If you believe that salvation is by the law, then you have abandoned a belief that salvation is by grace. And you cannot have it both ways. Either salvation is a divine accomplishment, meaning Christ died for our sins, or it is by human effort, meaning you are saved by your good works. That's the issue that the Galatians are facing. If you can lose your salvation based on the sum of the New Testament, then you were never saved to begin with. Jesus says that no one can snatch his children out of his hand. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The law, as Paul has established, produces death, but the Spirit has made us alive by faith with God. So now we eagerly await his return. On the cross of Jesus, Christ has purchased our righteousness. We're made right with God by faith in Christ. We are still living in this time between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with unbelief. Even as believers in Christ, though we're no longer slaves to sin, we still struggle occasionally or often or whatever. But Paul David Tripp says, Already Jesus reigns, but not yet has his final kingdom come. Already has sin been defeated, but not yet has it been completely destroyed. Church, it's a moment-by-moment-by-moment decision to die to yourselves, to die to your sin. It's applying the truths of the gospel deep down into your hearts. That God has freed us from the things that we still want in our weak moments, the things we still want to be enslaved to. We die to ourselves. And on our own, this work is impossible but we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to lead us, to guide us, to direct us, and to fight for us. Christ has purchased our righteousness now. So because of Christ, we're made right, we're justified, and we're adopted. But we still await eagerly with hope for the return of Christ to come and complete us, to make us perfect in himself to sanctify us. We receive this hope by trusting in Christ's finished work to us, the purchasing us through the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, works of the law in the Galatian church, the issue was circumcision. 
In our case, it's like morality for the sake of earning. And these don't count towards our salvation. The only thing that matters, the only thing that makes us right, the only thing that can bridge the enormous gap between sinful humanity and God himself, the only thing that can reconcile us back to God the Father is faith in Christ for salvation by Christ. The only thing that can save us is faith in Christ. And then our faith in Christ is then demonstrated by our love for Christ and service to the church and love for people. Faith is fruitful, demonstrated by our love. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul is continuing to show us that he's perplexed by the goings-on in Galatia. He's calling the character of these false teachers into question. Let this be a warning to you Christians. The Bible, as God's holy and inspired word, is our authority. False teachers are present today, as they were in the time of the Galatian church. If people claim to be called by God, sent by God, have a word from God, and yet teach contrary to the scriptures, completely disregard that message. Don't listen to them, and don't allow them any authority in your life. They're trying to hinder you from following Jesus. The only way to do this, the only way to be on guard against this is to know God and to know his word. So do you spend time with God? Are you spending time in God's word? Are you applying what you're reading to your heart? Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you've ever made bread, um, the yeast makes it rise. Too much yeast makes it go crazy. I used to ride the bus home from school, and uh, when I was supposed to be doing my homework, I was watching Family Matters um, with my Pop-Tarts, and there was one episode when Steve Urkel put too much yeast in his bread in his home ec class, and it took over the whole classroom with dough. That's like sin. Too much, little yeast. Paul is saying a little sin corrupts your whole life. If you tolerate false teachings about Jesus, it corrupts your view of Jesus. And if your view of Jesus is corrupted, then you will ultimately minimize sin. And then if you minimize sin, you then are more apt to persist in sin. If you compromise in one area of your life, you compromise in every part. Let me give you an example. Consider marital infidelity. Most of the time, the wandering party doesn't generally wake up in the morning and think, hey, today's the day. Today's the day I'm going to step out. Generally, this occurs when we compromise and when we drift further and further away from the Lord, when we stop pursuing our spouses, when we stop pursuing the Lord, when we start seeking satisfaction and fulfillment outside of the will of God for our marriage, 
And one compromise after another after another leads to more and more sin. On the other hand, when we're resting in the completed work of Jesus to us, we get to rest in grace and in forgiveness. And we get to lovingly submit to the Lord and follow him in obedience. If you've been redeemed by Christ, your desire should be to obey Christ fully out of love and gratitude to Christ. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul is confident that the Galatians will pivot and return to the faith in the way in which they started. It's the whole reason he's writing this letter, to call them back. It is the Lord who begins a good work in us, and it is the Lord who will bring it to completion. He is then calling to account the person or persons who are troubling the Galatians, and I'm not going to spend any time on that curse that Paul calls on them, but just know he's mad. That's angry Paul. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So this, up to this point in this book, Paul has been combating legalism, and now we see a shift. He's going to start talking about the dangers of what's known as licentiousness. That means license. I almost fell down. Uh, I told you I was hilariously unathletic. Full circle, bringing it back. Uh, anyways, licentiousness. It means license, doing whatever we want, and expecting God to forgive us. Christianity is kind of like a suspension bridge between the two, these two rivers of legalism and licentiousness. If we take our eyes of the truth, off the truth of the gospel, uh, that we have been saved by faith through grace, and what that really means for us, then we will be in danger of trying to earn our salvation by being good rule followers. That's legalism. Or if we take our eyes off the gospel and start thinking that God is supposed to forgive us because he is all loving and that leads us to do whatever we want, uh, that's licentiousness. Paul says, you have been called to freedom, but not freedom to do whatever you want, but freedom to serve the bride of Christ and to rest in faith and dependency on what Christ has done for you. He says, don't use your freedom, don't use your salvation as an opportunity to sin. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means is the next verse. No, we're not. We are people who have been dearly bought by the blood of Christ. That should change things for us. We should desire the things that Jesus desires. And what is it that Christ desires? Jesus desires to honor the Father. Christian, as we grow in Christ, so do our desires to honor God. 
our desires to honor God through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've been dearly bought. We've been forgiven. Forgiveness is available to us, and that should lead us to rest. That should lead us to rest in the grace that we've been given. And that should lead us to love and serve God and others in the way that God and Christ has served us. The whole law, the moral code of the gospel, is found in loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus in Luke 10 gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just for brief context, the Samaritans were enemies of of the Jews, God's people. And in this story, we see a man beaten up and left for dead by a group of of would-be thieves. And the two most religious Jewish men in society walk past their own, lying half dead, mostly dead, in, in a gutter. And then a Samaritan man rides by on his donkey. And he stops, and he bandages the man's wounds, and he puts him on his, his steed, and he carries him to town, and he puts him up in an inn, and then he pays the innkeeper to continue on in this man's care. Jesus tells this story because a, a man stands up and says, Hey, who is my neighbor? What must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells the story, who's, who's my neighbor? The guy's asking, what's the bare minimum I have to do? What's the bare minimum I have to do to do just enough? Like, I don't want to be inconvenienced too much. Jesus is telling the story to the crowd, and the question shouldn't be, who is my neighbor? The question really should be, am I being a good neighbor? Am I being a good neighbor to those that God has placed around me? Am I loving people in the way Christ has loved me? Has Christ's kindness to me led me to be kind in the way that Christ has been kind? Or the adverse. Am I a constant complainer, a constant grumbler, a divisive person? As the people of God, we ought to be the most loving, most kind people. And yet, churches are often rife with conflict. And many times, the children of God sound more like the children of the serpent. We are mean and hateful and ambivalent towards each other. And this is not what brings glory to God. Paul gives this illustration in verse 15. He says, if you'd bite and devour, the images of two animals just ripping each other to shreds. And we're going to spend some time again with that verse next week talking about conflict and conflict resolution. But for our purposes this week, I will say this. We've been saved by Christ out of sin. We've been called out of sin. We're called then to lovingly and patiently endure with one another the way that Christ has lovingly and patiently endured with us. Not to destroy each other. So I'll ask you this, believers in Jesus in this room. Does the grace of God to you propel you in love to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you desire to serve people in your community group? Do you desire to care for the needs, the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of the people in your church? 
Are you willing to serve wherever you're needed? Or are you one that grumbles and complains and gossips and stirs up division? Do you struggle to find any joy in Christ and in being a part of the church? Do you use your words to build up the church or are you complaining about the goings-on? Do you pray for your staff? Please do. Do you pray for your staff or do you tend to point out the ways you think that they're not meeting your expectations? Do you have a critical spirit? What we see in the faith journey is that the closer we get to Christ, the more we look and sound like Christ. And when our primary responses to people and situations is not dependency in the Lord, but anger and frustration and bitterness and criticism and cynicism spews out of us, we may not be as far along in our faith journey as we think we are. There's grace for us, yes, but we are called to holiness. You're called to be set apart as God himself is set apart and has set apart his church for love and good works in Christ. So are you pursuing this personally? Are you pursuing Christ and his righteousness for you? I'd also ask this. You've been saved for love and good works and you've been saved According to verse 13, you've been saved to serve. So are you serving your church? And if the answer is yes, thank you. Uh, But if the answer is yes, are you serving out of a delight for Jesus and what he did for you? Or are you serving because you think that's what you're supposed to do? If you're not serving out of a delight for the Lord, if you're not delighting in the Lord... And pray and ask that the Lord would change your heart and stir your affections for him and for the things of Jesus. Christ has served us by becoming death for us. We ought to then desire to serve him in faith and obedience. We aren't called to check boxes, but to really delight in the Lord. A lot of times, checking boxes can look like obedience to God, serving the church, leading your family, even praying and reading your Bible and giving. But consider your motives. Are you motivated by the love of God to you? Are you doing these things, good godly things, with wrong sinful motives? Are you doing these things to look a certain way, to feel a certain way, or treating God like he's a task that needs to get done? All of us, let's all ask God to reveal our motives to us and to convict us when our motives are not in line with his motives. Are you delighting in Jesus' love to you? Christ hasn't called you to consume because your faith is an idol. Christ has called you to join him in mission. And a part of that mission is serving the body in order that the gospel can go forth. We don't ask you to serve so we can pull off a service in the fun dome. We ask you to serve because the gospel's at stake. Consider this. 
When you serve in our kids' ministry, for example, you are investing in the next generation. One day, I was just reminded of how old I was in the hallway, one day we will be old and die. And our kids, by the Lord's grace, will continue on in the mission of Christ. We ask you to serve in kids so that our children, during this hour, are hearing the gospel message of Jesus, of salvation, that is meant for them too. We ask you to serve in kids so that men and women who aren't yet believers can sit in here with minimal distractions and hear the message of salvation to them and receive Christ. When you serve by setting up, you're helping create a place where we can come and hear the Lord and worship the Lord through music and, and the proclamation of the, of the Word. When you greet, you are welcoming people as a person who has been welcomed by Christ. What would it look like for you to elevate your view of service to Christ to something that, not that you have to do, but that it's an honor and a privilege to serve? It's something that you get to do because Christ has served you. Christ has served us by becoming death for us. Christ has paid our penalty against sin so receive his forgiveness, grow in Christ, cling to his grace, and follow him in faith and obedience and service to him. Let's pray.